If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 6 this morning. We're going to start reading here in verse 35 in just a moment. John chapter 6 is a long chapter. But it's a long chapter because Jesus is hard at work teaching us about who he is, changing expectations among those who have come to find Jesus but have come with very different motives. So Christ is hard at work bringing those hearts and minds back to him. This crowd that Jesus is talking to, let's remind ourselves that this is the crowd that the day before Jesus miraculously fed. And then they find him the next morning on another part of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what they do is they challenge him to feed them again. Their bellies had been filled. The feeding of the story of the 5,000 is what opens this chapter. And that is the crowd. Their bellies had been filled, and now they want more, actual physical food. So what Jesus does is he exposes their motivations for finding him, and now he is trying to move them from the miracles, the things they want him to do for them, to faith in him, belief in him for who he is. They want another miracle, and Jesus wants them to believe in him and be fed with everlasting bread. So it's a long conversation, and it's a long teaching in which Jesus reveals more about what's going on inside of the human heart, how the heart works, how we come to Jesus, the kinds of motives and desires that we have. He's revealing more about how the human heart works as well as the truth about who he is. And there's a disconnect there. There's a disconnect between they want, what they want and who he is. There's a disconnect often between why we come to Christ, what we want from him and who he truly is and what he has to give. And that combination becomes this challenge now for the disciples of Jesus, the potential disciples of Jesus as well inside of this crowd. Disciples say, or those who have come to seek Jesus, or those who are potentially disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus with things like, I know what I want from him, or I'm pretty positive who I think he is. That's all wrapped up inside of those hearts and minds. And then we have Jesus saying, now this is who I am, and this is what I give. Are you ready now to follow me, the truth of who I am, and all that I have? That becomes the challenge now for this crowd. This becomes the challenge now for the rest of the disciples of Jesus Christ. So here's what's going to help us sort of make sense of what Jesus teaches us today in this passage. What Christ offers, sin rejects. And that's just immediate in our passage this morning. Christ offers what none of us can manufacture, Christ offers us what no human system or ideology can manufacture, but our sin convinces us that he's lying. Our sin convinces us that he's not really who he says he is. It's not really true. So what Christ offers us, our sin rejects. And then we're going to pay attention to this as well. We've touched on this just a little bit. Our assumptions about Jesus need to be challenged. We grumble a lot about Jesus, especially as a culture right now. 
We grumble at least about our assumptions of him, our misperceptions of him. And these now need to be fixed so that we can see him for who he is and then follow the true Jesus. So our assumptions need to be challenged. Then there is again inside of this passage, and this is probably the one thing that has struck me new going through the Gospel of John this time. The promise of everlasting life is given again by Jesus Christ, the promise of eternal life. Christ continues to repeat this promise of eternal life for everyone who is going to believe in him. And now in this passage, he adds more language to that about raising them up at the last day. We believe in Jesus. We have everlasting life. And he says, I will hold on to them. I will not lose a single one of my children, and I will raise them all up again at the last day. This promise gets better and better <laughs> the more we pay attention to who Jesus is. So belief in Jesus means eternal life. It means abundant life now, and it means life after death forever with him. Isn't that good news? This is beautiful stuff. So let's listen to how Jesus interacts with the crowd and again begins to expose these things about them and about us. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of the Father, that this is what I give to everyone who believes in me. I am the bread of life. Now remember, we're kind of jumping into the middle of this conversation this crowd had followed Jesus. They wanted to be fed again. And as that conversation began, they quickly learned that they weren't going to get from Jesus what they thought they were going to get from Jesus. So they're asking questions, and they actually begin to push and begin to challenge. And they say, well, okay, what sign are you going to give us that you are actually the Son of God, that you are actually going to give what you promised that you can give? Moses fed our forefathers with manna in the desert for a long time. You fed us one time. Can you do it again? They actually challenge Jesus with that. And Christ's response is, well, okay, just keep following me and I'll just keep feeding you. It's not what he responds. He says, listen, I am what you're looking for. You want to be fed. Now, that normal food, you have to eat it over and over and over again. It just perishes. I am the bread that never perishes. And that's where we opened up. I am the bread of life. And this promise that comes with it, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So this is Jesus' response to turn them from what they were looking for to who he is. 
This claim changes everything inside of this conversation. Jesus is more than a teacher. He is more than just a prophet or a miracle worker. He is actually the one who's been sent by God the Father for the salvation and life of his people. This kind of claim changes everything, and they know it. So it becomes tension in this, congregation, in, in this conversation. It's going to be a lot for them to absorb. It will change their perception of everything about who he is and what it means to follow God. That perception gets challenged in the next part of the passage that we're going to read specifically. And it will change their sense of what it means to come in contact with their Savior. If eternal life is offered to me, am I willing to change what I think in order to receive it? You see, this is what Jesus is pressing on. You want one thing. You think one thing about me. What I am doing is I am offering you the truth. I'm offering you eternal life. Life itself that never goes away. But you're going to have to change the way you see things. You're going to have to change your perception. You have to change beliefs. This is really important. Am I willing to change what I think what I believe if I've been offered eternal life in Jesus Christ? Am I willing to change what I think about morality? Am I willing to change what I think is morally right and morally wrong if that means coming in contact with the true Jesus Christ and eating the everlasting bread that gives me abundant life now and eternal life forever with him? Am I willing to change what I think about sexual morality, the shape of the family, the way that I treat other people? Am I willing now to submit myself to Jesus and who he is? Am I willing to change these things? about what is important in life so that I begin to believe in Jesus and receive the life that he has for me. This is important because it is critical to how this conversation works in chapter 6. One of the most powerful barriers between the human heart and Jesus Christ is our sinful stubbornness. It's just one of the most powerful barriers. Yeah, I know you said that, but... Yeah, I know it says that, but. Yeah, I know Scripture is abundantly clear on this issue, but it is our sinful stubbornness that causes us to continue to roll back in on ourselves, believe what we want to believe, thinking that it is the bread of life when in fact it is bread that dies every day. It has to be renewed. It has to be redone over and over and over. Jesus says, now, if you let go of that, believe in me, you're actually going to have eternal life. But the blockade is our sinful stubbornness. The bread of life is the offer of never thirsting again and never being hungry again. We were made to be filled with Jesus Christ. One of the prayers at the very beginning of this 
this uh, book written by Augustine, one of the early church fathers in the early 400s. He writes this tale of, of his own conversion and the change of his life and the change of his behaviors and his beliefs and how God got a hold of him. And so reflecting on the sinfulness and his conversion inside of his life, near the very beginning of that book, he says something amazing. He says, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. We're restless. We're always hunting. We're always searching. If this didn't do the trick, maybe this will do the trick. And Augustine learned, I finally found rest when I put myself in Jesus Christ. The bread of life is the offer of never thirsting and never being hungry again. The world, the flesh, and the devil make crazy promises over and over and over. You follow me, you do what I do, you ignore this Jesus stuff, this Christ stuff. If you do what we want you to do or do what you want to do, then you're going to find the kind of utopia that you want. You're going to find the, the, the kind of joy and happiness and fulfillment and accomplishment that you want. But the world and the flesh and the devil, even though they make those promises over and over and over, they fail to deliver every single time. That's why the claims grow more outlandish all the time. That's why the claims grow more controlling all the time. You just didn't do it right the first time. Your neighbor didn't do it right the first time, so we have to change them, and then we'll finally reach utopia. These are the kinds of promises that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So John the disciple writes some epistles to a body of believers, and he reflects on this kind of thing. In 1 John chapter 2, listen to how John puts this. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, he says this, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world wants to capture your heart. God wants to capture your heart. And if the world has it, John says, the love of the Father isn't there. So he's telling these people that he loves, just please don't fall in love with the things of this world. For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, that word for desires in a lot of translation is just, a lot of translations is just given the English word lusts. The lusts of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I am the bread of life. If you believe in me, if you eat of me, if you drink from my blood, he's going to say, you'll have everlasting life. The loves, of, the loves of this world fail and fade away. So John the disciple tells these people, please don't fall in love with the world. The offer of Jesus Christ as compared to the offer of this world is the offer of walking into this wide open country of the kingdom of God. And this is true freedom. This is true abundance in life when it is in Jesus Christ. But... There's, there's, there's a hitch in the giddy-up in this process, and it's you and me. It's the sinful stubbornness 
inside of this heart. We're filled with it. Jesus tells this crowd, but you have actually seen me, and yet you don't believe. You've seen everything I've done. You've listened to everything that I've taught, and you still don't believe. If our hearts are captured by the world, and this is part of the teaching of this passage, as a matter of fact, if our hearts are captured by the love of this world, we just won't see him. Standing before us, the presence of the Holy Spirit is in this room right now. And if our hearts are captured by the love of this world, we won't see him. Until the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and minds, we can look directly at the offer of Jesus Christ and the goodness of the kingdom of God and just reject it outright. I love this passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It's a comparison between the life of the righteous and the life of the sinful. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. This realization of the life of God just grows and grows and grows until we hit high noon. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They're running around in the dark and they keep hitting things and stumbling over things and breaking things and they don't even know it. One is the path of the righteous and one is the way of wickedness. But thanks be to God, he has gone ahead of us and prepared the way for us if we will listen and believe. Here's what Jesus says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a lot of this kind of teaching inside of this passage of Scripture, that God gives his children to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ holds on to them. Verse 44, we're going to read a little bit later on, says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, who sent me draws him. And the basic truth is this, we are blind to Jesus until God opens our eyes. The language that Scripture uses, stuff like this, we are dead in our sins. Dead bodies have no life. They have no energy. They have no capacity to do anything but rot and decompose. That's why Paul uses that imagery. We are dead in our sins until the Holy Spirit breathes life into us. We are enemies of God in our sin. We are actually disposed against God. That's why we love the things of this world so easily. And so we love sin and we hate God's goodness. This is the work of sin and brokenness inside of our lives. So God in his power and love actually goes ahead of us sinful people who are enemies of God and makes it possible for us to respond to his gift of salvation. So get this, guys. This is a beautiful truth. God actually provides both sides of salvation, the gift of his son from above and the gift of our faith from below. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the gift that God has given from heaven. And God is going to be at work inside of the hearts and minds of people so that their faith will bring them to Jesus Christ. God gives us the gift of salvation from both sides of the equation. 
And this gift of salvation, as Jesus speaks of it, it is secure for everyone who believes. Unlike the perpetually failing promises of this world, the perpetually failing and unreachable expectations of this world, the salvation that God grants is complete and secure and eternal, and the promise of life with Jesus Christ endures. So Jesus says this, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. If you've, been, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, you remember that Jesus has actually, has actually said this kind of thing before. I am here to do what God the Father has told me to do. And this is what he told me to do. He's going to give me everyone he's going to give me, and I'm going to hang on to them to the end, and I'm going to raise them up on the last day. It's incredible. So what does God the Father want God the Son to do? He says in verse 39 that I should lose nothing of all that God that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. This is encouragement. This is encouragement. Jesus will never lose anyone the Father gives him. He keeps them here on earth and he carries them safely into eternity. If you are a child of Jesus Christ, he will keep you. He will hold you here on earth until you breathe your last breath or until Jesus comes and he will hold you securely for all of eternity. To paraphrase one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he says this, the child of God is perfectly safe in this world with Jesus Christ. It's a lot to grab onto. It's a lot to chew on. It's a lot to spend time with, but this is what Jesus is saying. The child of God is perfectly safe because you are in the hands of Jesus Christ. Now listen, things happen to us that we do not like. Things happen to us that are difficult and complicated and even full of pain. But none of them, none of them will separate us from Jesus Christ you will always be held firmly in the palm of his hand. And that kind of eternal perspective is absolutely critical for us, that you and I on a regular basis are reminding ourselves that eternity is real, that the story of Jesus Christ is true, that you are in his hands now and you will be in his presence forever. That eternal perspective makes all the difference. If this world is all we see, <laughs> if cable news is all we know, we will be controlled by things like anger and fear and anxiety and the need to control other people and on and on and on. But if our perception of everyday life includes the eternal sovereignty and providence of God, there's where we begin to find peace. There's where we begin to find wisdom. There's where we even begin to find crazy things like joy. If our everyday existence is filled with that perception of the eternal goodness and power of God. And Jesus begins to add in this conversation not just the language of eternal life, but he will then raise them up at the last day. 
Friends, this is part of the promise of Jesus Christ, and we need to make sure that we are absolutely clear on this doctrine, this biblical doctrine. That every human being is an eternal soul. These bodies will decay and get broken and fall apart and eventually die, but the soul that is within you will endure for eternity, either with God or without him. So Jesus says, you believe in me, I've got a hold of you. And nothing will ever separate your soul from me again. And so the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, it's near the end of his life. He's writing from prison. And he's writing as a guy who's torn between two things. He wants to continue to do the work of God here on earth. And it's going to be good for him to encourage the Philippians and other believers. But then there's this other side of him that I begin to understand more and more. It's the other side of him is it might be time for me to just go ahead and die and be with Jesus. I'm sort of torn between both of these things. And he tells the Philippians very simply in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. I will continue to do what Christ has called me to do, and I will be secure in his hands until they separate my head from my body. But to die is gain. It's not a moment of loss. It's a moment of gain because he will immediately be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Do you and I carry that with us? If God grants that I should live through the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, and on and on it goes, I'm going to live as Christ is guiding me, empowering me. If I die, I actually gain Christ. And then, friends, there is this promise that is added to that. Because there is coming a moment when Christ himself will return and he will set himself up as the actual king of kings and lord of lords over all of humanity and over all of creation. There will be a brand new heaven. There will be a brand new earth. He will reign in righteousness for all of eternity. The day is coming. And part of that promise is the resurrection of our brand new bodies. It's this incredible promise the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this near the end of that chapter. And this is, a, this is a great passage of Scripture. Paul tells us this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But it's gone because Christ is now all in all. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You believe in me, and you are now in my hands forever. It's not a metaphor, it's not a simile. It's literal. We will be with him forever. 
This is the teaching that Jesus is laying out for this crowd. Again, he is trying to take them from this miracle faith they have. He can do stuff for us to this actual gift that he can give of eternal life if they believe in him. He's trying to move them from one to other. He's trying to make sure that you and I are moving from one to the other. So as he says this now, uh, we continue with this back and forth between the crowd and Jesus. So in verse 41, the conversation continues like this. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. That is, they're having a hard time with that one. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Listen to the voice of the father. Listen to the voice of the father. And I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. This promise that God himself will teach and lead. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father speaking of himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He just keeps coming back to that. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. That's what they wanted was a miracle day after day after day. And he says, now listen, they ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so the one that may eat of it, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that last phrase is what leads to the last moment of decision inside of John chapter 6. But here in this part of the conversation, so the Jews are grumbling about him. What are they grumbling about? We knew you when you were this tall. I, I've grown up in Colorado Springs, and I often get to, I remember you when you were just this tall. <laughs> My response is usually, I'm sorry. <laughs> we know his mom and dad he didn't come from heaven he came from Nazareth I have a very difficult time putting these two things together their assumptions of who Jesus is are different than the truth that Jesus is trying to explain to them yeah you knew me growing up yeah you knew my mom and dad but here's what's really going on with who I am I am bread that has come down from the Father himself. I have come from heaven. So this, is now ten this tension is now one of identity. Is Jesus who we think he is, or is he who he says he is? Who am I following? Why am I following him? This tension of identity their choice, the one that's being laid before them. Are you going to brush me aside just because you know my mom and dad? Or are you going to believe in me because I've actually come from our Heavenly Father? Their choice is now our choice. They're torn between the boy and the family that they knew from Nazareth. One of the disciples early on in the Gospel of John even said, listen, 
Everybody knows nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Their choice is between this boy and the family that they knew versus Jesus actually being the Son of God. And we continue to be torn between different sets of options. And there are a lot of options about who we think Jesus is out there right now. There's a lot of this Jesus. The Jesus of grumpy Christians who are angry at the church that they grew up in. There's a lot of that Jesus going around right now. You might even know some of these people. They've had these conversations with you. They grew up in church. Oh, yeah, I grew up in church, but boy, those people were blah, 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 blah. Those people were hypocrites. Those people taught that. This was absolutely ridiculous. I just didn't like it. And my church experience was awful. So I don't go to church. I really don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't even really read my Bible anymore. There's the Jesus of grumpy Christians who are complaining about everything that happened to them in the past. Are we going to choose that Jesus? A lot of people are. Are we going to choose that Jesus? There's the Jesus of the average professor and the media type. He's just a Jewish sage. He's really not all that important. None of these miracles really occurred. He died a long time ago, and a few people like him. There's a lot of that Jesus going around, too. There's even more and more the Jesus of the angry activist. Jesus and his followers are colonial, racist oppressors. It's not just a group of people who believe something silly and we leave them alone. We actually think we need to get rid of them now because of how evil they are. There's a lot of that Jesus going around, the Jesus of the angry activist. There's the Jesus of liberal theology, a man of nothing but love and acceptance who will allow me to make whatever decisions I want to be. I want to do what I want to be. Jesus made me this way. There's nothing else to it. Is that who Jesus is? There's their Jesus of the miracle God. You just say the right words, do the right things, and he's just going to give and 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 give. There's a lot of that Jesus going around, too. All of these kinds of options and so many more have one thing in common. None of them are Jesus. All of them are us. Okay? None of them are Jesus. All of them are us. Taking whatever desires we have, whatever angers we have, whatever hurts we have, projecting them on the sky and refusing to see Jesus for who he really is. And Jesus, in the middle of that conversation, keeps saying, believe in me, believe in me. I am the bread that came down from heaven. You believe in all of those Jesuses? You're going to die in the wilderness just like your forefathers. You believe in this Jesus and there is eternal life. Are we ready to lay aside all of our false but powerful assumptions about who Jesus is to receive the truth, to receive eternal life? The Father is calling. The Father is drawing. The Father is working the plan of salvation even now as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Will we listen and will we believe? That's the call of this conversation. And they will be taught by God, he says. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus reiterates the role that God the Father plays in the whole process. He gives us Jesus. He draws us to Jesus. The church has believed for centuries that we are saved 
by the gift of God alone, the grace of God alone. Sola gratia. If any of you came from a, a sort of Presbyterian or Lutheran background, you may have heard that phrase. It just means by grace alone. But we also believe that the words of Jesus Christ become our responsibility. He says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. God's grace is at work even this morning drawing us to him. And the words of Jesus Christ become our responsibility to believe in him, and then we receive all that he gives. So Jesus returns to that challenge that this crowd gave him, and he says, God gave manna in the wilderness, you're right. They gathered it, they ate it, they were fed, and they died. What's different now is God gives Jesus. We believe and are saved, and we lived, and we live. This is what Jesus keeps saying now. So the choice that faced them faces us. Are we ready to change, challenge our assumptions about who Jesus is? Our assumptions about Jesus Christ are often, so often, wrapped up in the smallness of this world. Our perception of what's valuable, our perception of what's important. Jesus, give me a good parking spot. I really need it, right? That's silly, but we do that. This crowd wanted breakfast. Is that what we want from Jesus? Sexual liberation. It's part of the shallowness and brokenness and silliness of this world. Gaining more money, more worldly power. Is that why Jesus came? Is this what Jesus gives? Our assumptions of what, what are valuable in this world are just broken, fleeting things. But if we're ready to learn what Jesus Christ has to offer, something else is on the table. It reminded me of this, uh, this passage from C.S. Lewis's work, The Weight of Glory. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We want the small things of sin in this world. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The desires of this world, the desires of our flesh, that's the love that wants to capture us and blind us to God. He says those things are too small. We're too easily pleased by those things when infinite joy is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And are we ready to actually eat of the bread of life? This hits me more and more every single week, Christian. Am I ready to actually live like this is true? that my convictions are actually going to shape the way I walk through my week this week. The world is not making it easier for you and me to follow Jesus in this world, so we're just going to have to keep making this decision. I follow Jesus, so I'm going to live like this. 
I follow Jesus, so I'm going to make this decision. I follow Jesus, so I'm not going to make that decision. I follow Jesus, so I'm going to speak this way. I'm going to handle my finances this way. I'm going to handle my time and my family this way. Even if the world keeps going this direction, am I ready to eat of the bread of life and follow Jesus Christ and live as if this is all true? It just is time to get closer to Christ and further away. Let's pray.